I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producers are Patrick Antonetti and Sean Sherry. Been off for a couple weeks, but we're back with two excellent guests. First up is a regular James Andrew Miller. Jim Miller, best-selling author of books on CAA, ESPN, and Saturday Night Live, the host of the Origins podcast. He um, comes on to discuss not only what the college football moving from fall to spring or college football not being played this year, the impact that would have on ESPN, and it is significant, but um, a move that uh, many of you might not have seen this week, but was very, very big in the uh, sports media world, and that was Nick Khan, the former co-head of television for CAA Sports, leaving CAA to take a mega job as the president and chief revenue officer of WWE. That uh, that move has a ton of impact because CAA has a, has a and Khan specifically has a massive amount of clients that uh, are people that you have watched on TV for many years, such as uh, Kirk Herbstreet and Sage Steele and Mike Greenberg, Colin Coward. So Miller gets in and talks about the impact of that move, uh, what's going to happen with the salary structures of sports television, which uh, is a very, very interesting thing, and uh, just sort of the financials today on what uh, what agents may or may not be looking for. So if you like sort of the business end of of sports television, specifically the business end of um, of talent on sports television, you'll enjoy that conversation. He's followed by Anson Carter, who is an NBC NHL studio analyst, also, of course, a former NHL player for a decade plus with uh, a number of teams. Anson, uh, who's an excellent hockey analyst, has a uh, new multi-platform show called Hockey Culture, and that's highlighting stories of inclusion and diversity and people of color who work in the sport. And Anson and I discuss that new initiative, as well as if the NHL is serious about inclusion and diversity, how he felt about uh, what Matt Dumba was doing, and the defenseman for the Minnesota Wild. And then finally, uh, Anson, somebody who's been around in hockey now for multiple decades, and his views on the hockey media, and whether he thinks um, whether he thinks the hockey media is heading in the right place, whether uh, he has seen people of color in either the dressing rooms that he was in or now as an NBC analyst. But uh, Anson Carter uh, is uh, is an interesting dude and always has been, and I appreciate his time on this podcast. So James Andrew Miller and Anson Carter coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, Jim Miller, best-selling author, podcast host of uh, Origins on this fine Cadence 13 podcasting network and uh, a frequent guest of the Sports Media Podcast with Richard Deitch joins me. We've got a lot of uh, interesting things to talk about today, Jim, and welcome. But here's where I want to start with. Um, You know, the news is likely going to change by the time people hear this, but, you know, 
there is a very, very strong possibility that we will not have college football this fall, or at sort of the very least, we're not going to have some of these conferences playing college football this fall. That, of course, impacts so many different broadcasting outlets from Fox Sports to CBS to, um, to ESPN. And that's where I want to focus with you, just given your sourcing and, and knowledge about ESPN. Can you give my listeners just a sense of, like, on a macro level, what, what would it mean for ESPN if there are no games this fall? If there are no college football games, it's, it's a real problem. Uh, obviously, everybody's been very anxious to get back into it with college football and, and of course, the NFL. But ESPN has spent over $20 billion over the past decade on college football. They have, they have a bunch of rights, and they also have an enormous army of producers and directors and, more importantly, talent uh, that are in the booth and who are in the booth and they are anxious. They're all anxious to get to work. The, the thing that's kind of interesting is if you take somebody, if you take a team like Chris Fowler and Kirk Herbstreet, who are their top college announcers, and all of a sudden you say there may not be a college football season, what do you do if you're ESPN? Because you don't want to sideline two valuable, talented people like them and some of your other reporting teams, but specifically Kurt and Chris. And yet at the same time, uh, when I tweeted about the booth, I don't think anybody has come back and said that was wrong about the Monday night football booth with um, the threesome that they picked out, Lewis Riddick and Steve Levy and and Brian Greasy. But um, so it's a real... It's a real pain in the neck for ESPN. It's a very, very difficult situation. Uh, I mean, you know, one of the things that they are doing also with Monday Night Football is you kind of basically have a new truck. Uh, I mean, Chip Dean walked away, Jay, Jay Rothman walked away, and and now you have a, a new team in place, and you want to give that whole team, that those three announcers and also everybody in the truck, you want to give them the opportunity to really get their – get established and get their reps in and hopefully make it something that is going to be for years to come. And you don't want to all of a sudden just hit the delete key on them and then bring on, bring in Fowler and Herb Street for a year and then have them go back to college. So it's a right now at ESPN and, and they don't, as of yesterday, I know that they don't know the answer to this question. It's a, it's, it's vexing for them and they are trying to work it out. Obviously they're trying to triage and understand what kind of college football might be still open to them. But as far as a game plan, they, they don't have one right now. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll sort of like avoid the broadcasters for a second. That, that obviously is very interesting. Cause you know, I know from, from talking to the group that, uh, or from talking to people who are, I should say, close to the group, uh, who were named, that um, you know they expect they expect to call Monday Night Football regardless if there's college football or not. You obviously have this variable that Chris Fowler and Kirk Herbstreit would not have work between September and December. I think there's a larger conversation to even have uh, as to whether. Uh, putting Fowler and Herbstreit in an NFL booth is a good idea has nothing to do with how good a team they are in college football. That has to do with the fact that they don't traffic in the NFL on a week to week basis. And it's a very different sport to call. 
But let's hold that for a second, Jim, and and get to the get to ESPN and college football. Um, you mentioned that sort of they've invested billions of dollars. You have all this talent. You have all this these producers. Um, my what what I would wonder is. It, in the same way that if college football is not played, a lot of these athletic departments have talked about sort of how catastrophic it would be financially. Would you see ESPN um, cutting back at all on just the resources of college football, whether it's announcers, whether it's producers? Like, do you think they would use the cancellation slash COVID to maybe just change the way they do business, calling games from Bristol, Connecticut, as opposed to sending these armies of people throughout the country. Obviously, the main game of the week still get called on site, but do they not do game day this year, let's say, and and, and do that from a studio in Bristol? How do you think this, with no college football, so I'm sort of asking you two questions, but with no college football, how does it change heading forward the finances on all this, you think? Well, look, I mean, first of all, something like college game day is absolute collateral damage, right? I mean, it is... College game day is the antithesis of everything that's associated with COVID. I mean, you get like a bunch, as many college kids as you can in a small area, and they're on top of each other, and they're they're yelling and they're screaming, all the things that you know transmit the virus. And uh, so, I don't think I think it's a safe bet to say that we won't be seeing college game day as we know it this season, even if there are if, if, even if there is college football. But I think regarding your larger question, look, one of the things that ESPN is doing, and this isn't just about ESPN and college football, and it isn't just about uh, I mean even sports. This I mean, COVID is a, a huge huge event in all of our lives and all of all of the economics now associated with sports broadcasting, even entertainment, everything is being reevaluated. There are a lot of companies in all sorts of sectors who are saying, hey, you know what, we just realized over the last several months that we don't need to have, you know, people traveling as much as we do. We don't need to do it this way. We can do it this way. We can have a certain percentage of our our workforce work from home or whatever. So I think that we're going to start to see uh, myriad changes that are going to be implemented, maybe not necessarily right now, but certainly, particularly given the fact that there are some serious economic challenges that these companies are facing, that we're going to start to see whether or not you know, things are going to change, uh, not only just in terms of the, the sheer number of the workforce, but in terms of production exigencies and just the way things have been done for so long. And, you know, it was interesting to see. You, you saw it with Time Warner, uh, Warner Media did on some of their processes about HBO Max and programming. NBC did some of it. So I think we're going to, you know, continue to to see different changes coming along. And then it's not going to be just about ESPN, but I'm sure that there are people right now in Burbank or even in Bristol who are starting to, who have been, who have been gaming this thing out and looking at all the different variables and all the potential scenarios and saying, you know, how are we going to be able to do business as a result of these new realities? All right, that's I appreciate you answering that and undoubtedly COVID is going to change uh 
I mean, it's going to change everything. You know, I'm, I obviously think people listen to this podcast know I live in Toronto now, and just as something as, uh, at least in this city, uh, COVID has literally changed the ge- geography of the city with um, different kinds of uh, bike lanes that now exist, uh, spreading out uh, places where they can eat on patios have sort of now been uh, pushed to the streets, so less room for. Uh, automobile traffic, more room for pedestrian traffic. So you're, you're right on that, Jim, writ large and, and writ small, it changes everything. Um, so that's a segue, uh, uh, to get to sort of the main topic at hand here, which is really falls under your, um, expertise, which is why I, I wanted to have you on this week. Um, there was a major behind the scenes move, um, that got announced, uh, in the world of sports media representation, um, Nick Khan, who was CAA's former co-head of television and somebody who represented um, many, many of the people who you've seen on sports television for a long time, be it Mike Greenberg or Sage Steele, Kirk Herbstreet, Colin Coward, Jalen Rose, uh, and you know a much larger li- Adnan Verk, who's been a guest on this podcast, has talked about Nick Khan. Um, a very, very big client base, obviously. He... Um, as wrestling fans now know, uh, has taken a job as the president and chief revenue officer of WWE. He reports directly to Vince McMahon. That's kind of an amazing job. And uh, uh, if you're Nick Khan, who I know, happen to know as a wrestling fan, it's that's a once-in-a-lifetime move. you got to take it. Um, so, Jim, this leaves like some very, very fascinating decisions in a world that you know well, given that you wrote a book on CAA. Nick Khan obviously not only represented some major talent, but he represented the WWE and the Southeastern Conference and top-ranked boxing when they would negotiate with uh, television entities, media entities, to put their programming on. So it's a major name who moves on to the WWE. But then this, Jim, sort of is, uh, and this is going to be a long question because I want you to go long on this, this sort of all falls at the same time as COVID-19, where very, very clearly the industry is shifting and has already shifted for a couple of years into lesser salaries, um, probably moving a little bit younger, and now a major change at one of these major agencies um, involving a lot of talent. So a couple things here. Uh, let's start with the macro question. Um for, for listeners, and you, you should sort of go as long as you want, what, what is the move of Nick Khan leaving CAA to WWE? What does that mean for me as a television viewer, sports television viewer? As a television viewer, um, I'm, I'm not sure you're going to notice something right away. I mean, Nick was obviously behind some major deals with, as you said, a lot of major players, and it's not it, – it's not like somebody watching TV today is going to be having a different experience. But I think it is, it's a significant behind the scenes story because the moment that his departure from CA was announced, it set off a series of, you know, the proverbial dominoes throughout the industry, uh, the representation industry in particular, because he, they had a long, he had a long list of clients and all of a sudden there, there was kind of a, open season on them as often happens when somebody leaves and doesn't go to another agency. If they leave the business, then it's, you know, it's kind of assumed that people are going to be 
thinking about whether or not they're going to change somebody because their loyalty is often to an individual rather than to an agency. And so CA was doing its best to keep the people that Nick had and other agents and other agencies were trying to decide who on his list were of interest to him, to them. And, uh, you know, I spoke to numerous clients of his and obviously they were getting calls and there was, there was a lot of interest because Nick had, Nick had built, you know, quite a list. I mean, look, I first met him in 2006 and he was at ICM and he was part of what ICM was trying to do at the time, which was start this sports media representation business. And he wound up getting, I think Keith Overman and Hannah Storm were really two of his early important clients. Chris Boussard was also there. And then he left for CA in 2012, which ICM was not happy about. CA made a big bet on him and brought him over, and he was able to really create, I think, a formidable and uh, and, and lucrative business. It, it just so happens that the timing for Nick arriving at CAA and 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 really starting that, really building that business there, coincided perfectly with a couple things. One is the Skipper era, and John Skipper became like the George Steinbrenner of broadcast television contracts because he was willing to go big and he was willing to go long because he thought that ESPN needed it and the market and he wanted to to, to really own the kind of people he wanted. And the second thing was there was plenty of money. And so that, that was a perfect table setting for Nick. And Nick wound up getting, you know, Kirk Herbstreet and Michelle Beadle and Sage Steele. And I mean, you, the list, Greeny, and I mean, the list was, was long. And he got involved also um, working with Jimmy Sexton and others there with coaches. And there was, there was a lot of volume and the deals were big. And obviously he had a relationship with Skipper where Skipper trusted him and the two of them could do deals together in a way that very few people can, very few agents can do uh, with, not not to say that other agents weren't doing deals with John Skipper, because of course they were, and other other places were doing deals as well. But I think that Skipper and Khan had quite the run. I think also Nick and Jamie Horowitz had a big run uh, with Colin Coward, who, uh, had great success and skip and there were some other big big deals so you start to think about the enormity of that of that list but you also start to think about the fact that Khan was also kind of like he wanted to build this empire over there so he was hiring specific junior agents and he was mentoring things and you know he had this thing on Friday afternoons at four o'clock where he'd open up his doors and I mean other agents do this but he really became uh, quite fastidious about it and he would kind of talk about the business and talk about the challenges and mentor people in, in more formal ways and I think that that whole kind of there was a there was a culture there that grew underneath him now did everybody love him no 
he was very, in some ways, he was very controversial because he has, um, Nick had a very um, interesting way about doing business. He was, he was incredibly calm about it, but at the same time, he just, he had a lot of, uh, a lot of resolve. And the people who decided to challenge him and go up against him, I think, to the, to the, to the most, to, to the large degree, um, wound up regretting it. And it, it was never like he beat his chest or anything like that. I mean, I, I often said, you know, you, the guy's heart rate is like, you know, at 60 beats per minute, whether or not he's about to close a deal or whether he's about to fire somebody or steal somebody from somebody else or has somebody stolen from him or whatever. He's just remarkably calm. But he he was very, very aggressive, very ambitious. And um, and I think the last thing, and then I'll shut up about this, is he. I think the thing that people realized also was he was incredibly loyal. You know, when Jamie Harwitz left NBC and then left Fox, Nick was there for him. When Skipper left ESPN, Nick was there for him. I think he, if he, you know, if you have Nick on your on your team, so to speak, um, you know, it was something you felt good about. And I think as a result, a lot of his clients. Uh, you know, we're really stunned this past week. But at the same time, I think it's giving people, look, there are other sports agents and people who do what Nick do, uh, does at other agencies who are really good at their jobs. And I think that the fact is that right now what's happening is that there are, there are people who are getting to talk to these clients in a way that they haven't been able to um, for quite some time because Nick had them. And it will be interesting to see how it shakes out, how many people CA is going to be able to hold on to and who's going to decide to walk. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's a really interesting moment. But the other part, and I think maybe this is the most significant thing, is I don't think we're going to see another error like that again. Uh, the economics of the business have, have fundamentally changed, and these contracts that were, that Nick was able to put together of you know three million, four million, five million, three years, four years, five years, six years. Um, I don't think we're going to see a lot of those. I mean, obviously, there's always going to be outliers, and people like Kirk Curbstreet and others uh, are going to have their deals, and they're going to be paid handsomely, and but. Again, I think it's going to be very, very hard to to replicate, at least in terms of dollars and cents, uh, the kind of activity that we've seen over the last seven or eight years. All right. Let's first of all, it, I mean, there's so much praise in Nick Khan here. I mean, it's been, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to go to my uh, healthcare person. So I'm in pain from this. But in all seriousness, he, uh, you know, you speak to his clients and. Um, and he was an excellent agent for them. You know, you may not love all his clients or all the people he helped, and that's, that's certainly a discussion worth having. But um, they will all, generally speaking, most of them uh, will will tell you that um, you know he made them in- incredibly wealthy, and in some cases, generationally wealthy. So here's a couple things, Jim, that I want to ask you about because I know you you're very very connected and tied to CAA. Um, if you are if you are the 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 two guys who are sort of taken over for Nikon and Matt Kramer, Tom Young, and certainly there are other agents who have picked up some of Khan's clients and probably have done so even prior to this decision. Um, how do you go about? And this is maybe more just of 
you sort of freestyle in here, given that you've talked to a lot of uh, quote unquote talent. But if you're these agents, like, do you have to make the sell to the client that like, we want you to stay, we love you, uh, stay with us? Or if the client is already happy about being represented by CAA, is the client sort of likely to lean that way because they don't they don't want to make a move understanding that there will be agents from other agencies clearly reaching out to say hey nick khan's gone i can do so much better for you like you know what i'm saying like if you're if you're let's take a mike greenberg type or a colin coward type or if you're somebody like that um like are you actually looking around to, to see what else is out there or shouldn't you just sort of stick around with the agency that has made you a shitload of money i think that there's a there's a couple different scenarios. There's somebody who, look, back back when Mike Ovitz and Ron Meyer were starting CA, Bill Haber and others, one of the things that they was really important to them was this team concept because they wanted to kind of cre- create some Teflon around them, right? So if you're if you're talking to just one person and that person goes to a different agency, then that's the only person you know and you want to basically go with them. So they always had, they tried to have a bunch of people talking to you. And so if one person left, you were still felt like you were part of the team. And there are, there are other people in Nick's world at CA, including young guys like Matt Olson and others who have been part of some of these clients' lives. But if you really were just in the, if you were at CA because of Nick Khan and you loved Nick and you just wanted to be tied to Nick, then I think, you know, look, you're listening to other people at different places right now to hear what they have to offer and what their, um, their worlds are. And the other thing is if you're somebody who is thinking horizontally, then you start to, you start to think of a, what what is their speakers bureau like at a different agency? Do they have a great book department? Uh, what is what do they do with commercials and endorsements and everything else? So particularly if you're thinking about the fact that you're not going to be able to get, uh, you know, if you have a contract coming up in a year or two, and you're worried about whether or not you're going to be able to forget about an increase, whether or not you're going to be able to get that same deal, and you start to think I may not be able to. So then the onus becomes on CA to try and say, well, look, we'll make it up for you elsewhere. But it also gives places like WME, which full disclosure, I'm a client of, um, the opportunity to say, look, here's, here's what we have here. And here are some of the people that you have here in us. I mean, obviously, people like Josh Pyatt, who work with you know, LeBron and who worked with Kobe and who have unbelievable track records with um, unscripted uh, areas. And, you know, I mean, so the Jim Morenstein's of the world at WME and, and people at UTA and people at ICM or whatever get to say, look, this is, this is what our agency is about right now. I mean, we're going to, we think we can give you the same kind of service in your core business as Nick did at CA, but we also believe that, you know, we have a new speakers bureau and we have new this or that. So it becomes like a little, a little longer list of value propositions to, to the client. And I think that, you know, uh, I, I think that there's a lot of people who are listening right now. That doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be a lot of movement, but I know CA is working very hard to retain the people who are important to them. And the other brutal thing that kind of goes on right now is 
it's it's a little Darwinian because uh, you know when you talk to people at other agencies and they're looking at Nick's list as well. Yeah, not interested in him, not interested in her, not interested in him, or yes, want him, yeah. And that's part of the business calculation that those people have to make. And I think that the smart agents, I, I think one of the things that's happening uh, at WME and elsewhere is if they're interested in somebody, those people know that they're really interested in them. It's not just to get another name. Nobody's in the business right now of just taking on more clients just for the sake of having another name on a list. I think that the people who are being pursued by the other agencies should feel really good about the fact that they are, you know, I mean, if Octagon is calling you and Phil DiPicciato wants to be in business with you or other people, it's because they really want to be in business with you. They're, it's it's too hard to represent people nowadays just, just to have them, you know, not be, um, somebody that you feel like you you can't hit a home run for, and so I think that those they're still but they're making they're also still making money, right? I mean, they're still making money. You know, you're I, I have no doubt they want to be in business with them, but at the end of the day, you're also trying to aren't you also trying to poach clients because they can make money for you? They can make money for your agency. Yeah, but there's a calculation, Richard, that an agent has to make, which is that there's only so many hours, even for an agent who you know take phone calls in bed at 11 o'clock at night. There's only so many hours of the day. And I think what what a lot of these, particularly the, the varsity in terms of representation in this, in this sector, what they really want is they want a great list that they feel really good about, that they feel like there's a lot of runway ahead, both financial and creative, and that they can, they can really commit themselves to, and that they're people that they want to be in business with. They would rather have I think a lot of these people would rather have, um, let's just say, eight or ten of those types than 20 or 25 other, you know, a longer list that just are some intermediate or average players that don't have a lot of upside. Now, there are young clients at these places who may want to hire and desperate for a, let's say, a sports center anchor who's going to make $400,000 right now, and they believe that they could do that. And some of these leaders in these agencies are probably thinking about maybe assigning or having some of those younger people take care of them. But I don't think you're going to see a lot of people like to, you know, um, go after Nick's clients who, who really don't believe in them and don't want to really have a, have a great marriage with them. They're just trying to take them for the, for, for just a, you know, um, for, for just a commission. The business is just too hard right now. And these people don't want to be in doing that. All right. So that's interesting. Um, and, uh, and so I, this leads me to sort of the, the, the question I wanted to get to you, uh, with about salaries. And so it, we've, you know, just sort of offline, me and you have, have kicked this around, but it seems that there's been course correction is like not the right word because that, that would mean that it sort of like it was too high or something like that. But it, it seems clear that there's that places like ESPN and others are trying to lower their salary base significantly. Someone like Stephen A. Smith or at that level is still going to get paid whatever he or she is going to get paid. But it strikes me, Jim, and, and tell me if your sort of uh, your understanding or just who you talk to is the same. It strikes me that the middle class, particularly of sports broadcasting, 
is going away. The 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 quarter million, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollar, and again, that is not middle class in the United States. That's just middle class, like in this world. Um, that like that person or that position is going away, and you're going to have some mega haves, but then you're going to have a lot of people coming into the business who are going to make significantly less money and probably be significantly younger. What have you seen or what have you heard about sort of the larger uh, salary structure uh, going on right now? And is there indeed a sort of a course correction uh, amid both COVID and perhaps even prior to COVID? Well, I mean, look, ESPN has, what, 8,760 hours of programming? I I mean, you're always going to need people on camera. I mean, Steve Bornstein used to say that he wanted to hire robots. But I I, I think you're going to – I mean, there's always going to be people making a certain amount of money. But I I do think that if you look back three, four years ago and and even even at ESPN and, let's say, Fox or whatever, there were – there were a good chunk of people making several million dollars a year, and and I don't think that's going to happen. I think that you're going to. I think it's not so much losing the middle class. I think it's losing the upper class. The upper class is going to. There's going to be fewer Stephen A. Smiths and people like, um, you know, like, like Mike. Re- I mean, no offense to Mike Greenberg, but that that that. That is ins- that contract can never happen again, right? That's an in- that's North an insane that was an insane amount of money to, to yeah an insane amount of money to pay to him for fronting a morning show that you know at its best can average like four hundred thousand, and now he's got a solo radio show, and I realize that's a lot of hours, but that six million dollars for that six and a half million dollars for that 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 seemingly I don't think happens in a non John Skipper Nick Connor are you know, have a great relationship universe or tell me if I'm wrong about that. No, no, no. That's, that's what I'm saying. It's going to be in the upper class. I, I think, I think the, the, the middle class is going to, is going to actually thrive. I think that people who have these contracts that are two, three, four million dollars are going to, are, are going to see significant hits. And not only that, but they're not going to have like a five-year deal They're You know, it may be like a, a two or three year deal. And, and I think that's going to be important. There's one other aspect though, that I think we're going to, we're, we just to, to give people kind of a sense of this subculture. It's not just transactional though. One of the things that um, people in this business do um, is they spend a lot of time in between contracts, putting out fires. And so when you're, when you have a client who is on a show and that show is going down on flames or a client who is on a show and the coordinating producer is making their life hell or you have a client on a show that's not getting any marketing or the two anchors are not speaking to each other. I mean, some of the stuff that Nick had to do with just the NBA show at ESPN, uh, particularly when, uh, you know, it was very volatile on the set. I mean, those are, those are days that, um, you know, an agent earns their money as well. And I think that that's another reason why the Ornsteins and the DiPicciottos of the world and others are, are really thinking carefully about who they want to be in business with. Because when you have a client calling you and they need you not to just get them more money or just not to get them a longer deal, but they really need your expertise in order to figure out a way to navigate 
out of a certain problem and a certain situation. You need somebody with the, the kind of the gravitas to call the right person at the network and say, listen, I, my client needs to be protected here and this needs to change or we need this to happen and I can't let her or him be subjected to this anymore. And the client is counting on that agent to get those kind of results. So these these jobs are it's not like you talk to you know, you talk to your client every every time the contract is up. Um, the agents who used who did that were the agents that Nick stole clients from. Because those were the people that felt like, hey, you know what? I'm only getting people to pay attention to me when I have a new deal and there's a new commission in place. And so I think that it's really important for clients, particularly now, to to understand that they're going to have somebody who's going to go to bat for them because everything's so volatile. And there, there, there are a lot of issues. And you want somebody who's going to be able to have the clout to to, you know, calm the situation down for you. You know, we could do, so, I mean, you know, we could probably do like sort of just two hours on, uh, on sort of the, the sort of the agent slash talent relationship. But uh, here's where I want to end on. And it's sort of more philosophical. The interesting thing to me, Jim, is as we head forward, do you, can you, in your opinion, can you still achieve um, what you would like to achieve in, in a business like, uh, sports television, you know, high-end sports media without an agent. I remember, I, I hope I'm right about this. I think John Buchagross told me once he didn't have an agent. Um, and I know there was a time where Ryan Rossillo, if I remember him telling me, this is long ago, my memory could be fading, told me that he might not have had an agent for one of his deals. But by and large, Jim, the the talents that I talk to at the Foxes and the ESPNs and the CBSs and the NBCs, they all have representation. And generally speaking, the big ones are all with major, major agents. Um, having written about this, having written a book about this, like, is it possible? Can you, can you, can you go in and do it and still get your fair market value or because of the relationships that the agents have with the networks, because maybe even on the network end, they expect you to have an agent and might think differently of you and try to lowball if you don't have one. Like I'm wondering, can it, can you have the career you want without, without an agent or maybe just having a lawyer, like read your contract over? It's always been an interesting question to me. And I don't honestly know the, I don't know the correct answer. If there even is one, how do you see it? I'll just quickly unpack it with starting with your question about fair value. One of the things that if you're, you know, a major player in this business, you have a sense of what is going on elsewhere. If you're, if you, if you're a, if you're an anchor and you have a lawyer who takes care of your stuff and um, just negotiates, they may do a great job of negotiating. But if you're somebody at WME or CA or Octagon or wherever, and you have your client list in front of you, I mean, at any point, Nick had like this little you know, kind of card inside his desk. I unfortunately never let me see the details on it, but it was basically, you know, his clients and their salaries. So when you're negotiating for someone, you walk in and you're sitting across the, the table from, uh, let's say, you know, David Burson or Connor Shell or somebody uh, and your, or Skipper uh, and Sean or whoever it is. And you're, you're negotiating. You get to say, look, I know you're paying so-and-so this, and my client 
is much more valuable, and my client is going to be doing X, Y, and Z on top of this. So let's go, let's start at 40% more than you're paying this one. I mean, you have a sense of the competitive landscape, and you have a sense of what other people are making. And believe me, that is a big engine in terms of driving salaries up. Because you, you make a deal, you know, all of a sudden you make a deal for, for Hannah, then you got, and then you use that to make a deal for Susie, and then all of a sudden you make a deal for Michelle, and you make, I mean, it's like, I mean, it's, it, it becomes exponential. So that's, that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is, it depends what you want from an agency, because if you really are, if, you, if your business is about, let's just say, go into ESPN and all you really want from ESPN is a steady paycheck for the next three years. You're going to be a, you know, a co-anchor on sports center. And if they need you to fill in someplace else, that's fine. Then you know what? You're probably, you can save yourself 10% or 6% or whatever you can negotiate. But if you want something else, if you want to be writing a book, if you want commercial endorsements, if you want to be um, doing a variety of other things, then that's when people start to really think that they're willing to pay for the agency because the agency, the totality of the agency brings up, brings a lot of other things your way. And then you have a lot of different types of agents calling you. And let's say you want to get into, I mean, like Hannah Storm was produced, started producing documentaries and you want to, you want to get in the documentary business and you want to do scripted television. Um, that's when being part of an agency uh, really starts to, to have, you know, deeper added benefits for you. So it's all, it's all just a, it's, it's just a matter of evaluating, you know, what you want to, whether or not you want to pay somebody that kind of commission in exchange for those kinds of things. But in terms of understanding what the competitive landscape is, in terms of getting all those benefits from an agency, most people find that it's, you know, it's, it's worth it. And the trick is just getting the best person and the best fit with you. That's an interesting answer. I, uh, I appreciate that. Jim Miller, of course, is um, uh, the best-selling author of books on ESPN and CAA, has an HBO book coming uh, coming very soon. His Origins podcast uh, is on um, Almost Famous, so that's part of this network, Cadence 13. I guess we should have a moment of silence for HBO Sports. I know. Kind of officially... Can you believe, I mean, well, yeah, but I mean, what that was at once uh, and what it is today, man, it's amazing. It's interesting to see that the two things that are really left, Brian, Real Sports with Brian Gumbel and um, Hard Knocks, in a way, are still staying as part of the HBO ecosystem. So I guess, you know, if you're Ross Greenberg today, you're feeling bittersweet about, uh, you know, what what went on in, uh, in terms of what happened after your legacy uh, after you left but he certainly has um, he certainly gets to to live on in terms of you know what what what's going to remain it it was uh it's been a, an astonishing um story to chronicle and uh i mean i'm i've been writing about it and uh, i think it's going to be fun to to be in the book yeah, I mean, it's amazing. Just from like uh, once upon a time. Well, not fun, but no, I know what you're saying, but like dramatic. Yeah, once upon a time. Um, I mean, between HBO's boxing and uh, and documentaries, and then of course real sports and um, hard knocks. I mean, what a what a sports juggernaut. But uh, do you have a date? When is the is is there a, when is that book coming out? Do you have a date, a publishing date yet? Are you allowed to say? 
I don't yet. Okay. All right. Stay I don't. For that. Let's, let's hope you beat that Game of Thrones author in terms of getting out there. Jim Miller. Uh, and lastly, you interrupted my, my, my kicker here, my close. Check out his Origins podcast on Almost Famous. It's uh, Basically, it's, it's everywhere that you can get your fine podcast. All right, Jim, listen. That was good. I, I found that very, very interesting and learned some stuff about the, the, uh, the, the relationship of the agents and uh, sports media talent. Thank you so much for uh, joining me today. Stay safe, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk soon. All right. Well, thanks for having me as always. Anson Carter is an NHL studio analyst for NBC Sports. If you're a hockey fan, you um, are familiar with him playing in the NHL 11 seasons for, I mean, a crazy amount of teams. Capitals, Bruins, Oilers, Rangers, Kings, Canucks, getting tired, Anson, Blue Jackets, and Hurricanes. He is uh, on this podcast to discuss uh, hockey culture, which is a multi-platform content initiative from NBC Sports, dedicated to bringing equality and inclusion to the sport of hockey that just started this week. And uh, it's great to be joined by Anson Carter on the Sports Media Podcast. Um, all right, Anson, let's just start here. Very much a sort of a macro question. What's the goal? What is hockey culture? And then what is the goal of this initiative that you're a part of? Well, hockey culture is a platform that I'm very fortunate that NBC Sports was able to uh, come up with the idea um, with allowing me to develop this platform to tell these stories um, about diversity in the game of hockey. You know, everyone keeps talking about hockey not being a very diverse sport. And on the surface, yeah, I can see when people could get that impression, but it's more diverse than people think. So this is an opportunity now for me to tell these stories about not just the diversity that we have in the game on the ice with guys like Seth Jones, who's really developed into one of the best defense in the National Hockey League, to I could talk about stories about Eustace King, uh, the first black agent in the National Hockey League, to Kelsey Colzer, the first black female coach in NCAA hockey at Arcadia, uh, Angela James, first black female to get inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Like, There's so many great stories out there about diversity, even Hunter Ryan Singh, the voice of Hockey Night in Canada, Punjabi, who does a tremendous job there uh, introducing the game of hockey to that South Asian community in Canada, uh, telling the stories and you know calling the game in their native tongue. These, um, these episodes are going to appear on um, YouTube during the Stanley Cup playoffs. Have you uh, and or any of your colleagues, have you already conducted these interviews or have you already done these features or are, they, are you still in the process of uh, compiling uh, episodes and content for, um, for the Hockey Culture Initiative? You know, a lot of the, the content, at least for this run up into the playoffs, has already been compiled, uh, which has been, we took really a good advantage of the stay at home and the pause and we want to bank as many of them as possible because we didn't know about players' availability or guys uh, being able to focus on doing something other than getting ready to come back and play hockey again. So we were able to, to work hard behind the scenes and bank as many of them as we can so that now as the postseason continues, we can just roll them out uh, week to week. Anson, um, I know you've spoken about this a lot, and I know you're a sports fan, so you've certainly seen what's happened in other sports, uh, be it the NBA or 
MLB. We're seeing a lot of college athletes right now, I think, recognize um, some of their power uh, when it comes to speaking their truths about systemic racism or police brutality. I would argue maybe the WNBA has perhaps been the best league of all. They, they were pretty early to this um, and have been speaking publicly for many, many years. Um, in your opinion, and again, I realize it's a very, very big question, but where, where is hockey right now? regarding um, these discussions, regarding Black Lives Matter. We've seen certainly a lot of public statements, but um, in your opinion, where is the seriousness in terms of uh, rooting out racism in the game, bringing more diversity into the game? Uh, We're not where we need to be, but we're we're getting there. And that's what I want to see. That's what I want to hear. And you're starting to see actions taking place Uh, for the longest time. Uh, because hockey isn't, wasn't so diverse, uh, a lot of the stuff that was happening uh, within the game of hockey, not just NHL level, but the grassroots level of Hockey Canada and USA Hockey was falling on deaf ears. But now we have the right people's attention. We've got Pat Kelleher, who runs uh, the executive director of USA Hockey. We've got Gary Bettman, commissioner of NHL, Bill Daly, deputy commissioner, Kim Davis, um, Don Fear. Everyone is all aligned with trying to eradicate racism in the sport. And for me, that's what's the most important thing because it was extremely frustrating to keep hearing these stories in the past and nothing was being done. We're still hearing these stories now, but you're seeing a lot of swift decisions that are being made uh, about fans, uh, about players, uh, about young players that choose to speak this way. And now it's not acceptable. And it's not just the black players or black executives are speaking out. It's the white players. You know, you always hear about allyship all the time. Well, that's super important when it comes to hockey because it's the white-dominated sport. It's important to have the Blake Wheelers and the Braden Holtbys uh, speaking out, uh, the Tyler Sagans kneeling uh, during hockey games. Like, that stuff's important. And people say, well, hockey and sports, it shouldn't be a part of, you know, talking about racial injustice and equality. Well, that, they're totally wrong. Because as a black athlete, and I'm sure as white people out there listening to this, um, it's part of your everyday life. You might not deal with injustices if you're white, but black people, it's part of our everyday life. So, yes, we get to play the game, and we get to maybe forget about it for a couple of hours while we're actually playing and competing, but that's who we are as people. We just can't remove ourselves from that situation. So uh, I've, I've heard it before, and I'm going to say it again. Talking about racism isn't politics. Like, it's not. And whoever says that, they're, you're being an idiot. Talking about race, and that's just common decency. I mean, that's a right that every individual uh, should, should have to be treated equally. And if anyone wants to say that's political, uh, they get their head in the sand. That's uh, well said. Um, I want to ask you about Matt Dumba and, uh, and just to get your perspective on this. Um, he took a knee for both anthems. Um, if I remember correctly, for one of the pregames, he, he put his fist up in the air very um, sort of a uh, parallel and symbolic to what John Carlos and Tommy Smith did at the 1968 Mexico City games. Um, initially, Matt Dumba was alone on this. Uh, a couple of teammates, I think Robin Leonard, I'm probably missing somebody else, eventually, I believe, took a knee with him in support. What I didn't really see, though, um, compared to certainly other sports, were more players during anthems actively protesting. That is certainly their choice. Um, and I respect the choice of people who kneel. I respect the choice of people want to stand up. But, you know, it does Anson get to a sort of a larger 
question I have for you, and that is when it comes to the players in the game, when it comes to the constituency, some of these players have certainly said the right things publicly. Um, Are you convinced that that's not just either performative or posturing or just sort of saying uh, the right platitudes in the moment and there's going to be sort of heft behind it? Or can you be worried that, you know, player X sort of checks a box, says, of course, I support uh, anti-racism issues. Of course, I support my teammates and then sort of moves on. There's a lot of performative activism going on right now, Richard. And yeah, I agree with you on that for sure. But and to your point about like some of the guys not kneeling, I'm not really that concerned about that. And I think it's everyone's choice. And it's up to you. You you could decide if you want to kneel. And, and listen, if you kneel, there's nothing wrong with that. And if you don't kneel, there's nothing wrong with that either. Like you might feel and be able to relate to what a guy like Ryan Reeves is talking about or Matt Dumb is talking about and choose not to kneel. That's okay. You might be doing something behind the scenes that nobody's talking about to partner with uh, these inner city underprivileged boys and girls clubs, for example, that don't really have the cameras around or the newspapers around to talk about it, but you're doing your part. So that, that's okay. I, I tend to focus on the fact that guys are willing to kneel. Whether it's one guy, two guys, it doesn't really matter. That's one or two guys more than what we had previously in the National Hockey League. So that's where my focus is, and that, that's what I like to see. Here's the last one for me, Anson. Um, and you played in the league for 11 seasons. And um, you're now part of the hockey media, so you 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 have a pretty long, I feel like uh, a pretty long lens when it comes to the diversity or lack thereof of the NHL media, because you obviously played, you were in made you many different cities, you saw different uh, press boxes or, or 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 sort of press groups, and now obviously at NBC you're a prominent studio analyst, so you're in the the television, the broadcasting end. Um, from sort of my eye test uh, and sort of, I mean, you don't, you might not know this answer and obviously every listener knows this. I'm a white male. So of a certain age and generally speaking, when I've covered hockey, that is generally what I've seen. It's a little better now in the last 10 years when it comes to gender diversity, I've seen many more women, thankfully um, covering the sport, but by and large, the sport, at least in the press corps answer remains pretty white and pretty male um, from your perspective perspective what have you seen from both the player perspective and now working in the business regarding uh diversity people of color covering the sport has it i don't know has it gotten better in your eyes and if it hasn't gotten better are you optimistic for the future or are you not optimistic for the future i'll sort of take whatever broad answer you want to go with on that It, it certainly has gotten better richard and Listen, when I played hockey and I grew up watching Hockey Night in Canada and then moving to the U.S. when I was 18 and watching all the coverage here south of the border, now being a dual citizen, uh, you're right. I, I've, I've seen a lot, both in Canada and here in the U.S. And playing in some of the U.S. markets and Canadian markets, all these teams, it's given me a unique opportunity to see how these different organizations are run, not just on the ice, but from a broadcast perspective. And you're, you're talking from a league standpoint, you're seeing a guy like Bill Douglas who's had the Color of Hockey blog forever, and that's been brought into the NHL family. I uh, see Tark Al-Bashir, who was an analyst, and he covers um, the Washington Capitals in D.C. You've got Kevin Weeks, NHL Network, Jamal Mayers, uh, NBC Sports Chicago, the Chicago Blackhawks. You have David Amber, 
DA is one of the hosts and the co-hosts of Hockey Night in Canada, probably the biggest TV property in that country. So, yes, I have seen um, an increase in diversity off the ice in the broadcasting space. And it's not going to happen over overnight. Just like on the ice, too. Like, we're seeing things change in the hockey world slowly. Like, the same number of players might be playing in the league than when I played, but you're seeing players like P.K. Subban win a Norris Trophy. You're seeing Wayne Simmons, All-Star Game MVP. Seth Jones, Evander Kane, fourth overall. This year we could see Quentin Byfield go as high as number two. Some people say he could go as number one. I think the, the jury's out. I think Lafreniere is going number one with the Rangers. But Quentin Byfield is a player that could go in the top three picks. That didn't happen 15 or 20 years ago. It just, just didn't. Like, black players weren't evaluated the same way. And now you've got people in the media now that could talk about this stuff uh, and look at it from an unbiased perspective. You know, before black players weren't in the All-Star game. Like, it didn't matter what you did. I could score 30-something goals, and I wasn't getting called for the All-Star game. You know, now you see a guy like Anthony Duclair, who's one of the most electric players of the Ottawa Senators. He played in the All-Star game. So to answer your question, yeah, I, I think things have changed. I think things are continue to change. Uh, you see someone like Blake Bolden in the front office there as a scout with the L.A. Kings. So from the media perspective, as the game starts attracting um, and making more diverse efforts into reaching into those communities, you're going to start seeing more diverse faces covering the game and talking about the game and telling those stories. Now let's let's uh, let, let's hope that is the right direction. I'll give a shout out to my buddy who works with me at the Athletic, Ryan Clark, as well covers the Avs in um, in uh, Denver and some other national stories. Does an amazing job. Oh, and, and one one more guy too. I forgot. I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention even Xavier. I'm sorry, Xavier Javier Gutierrez. Like Javier, the first Latino president slash CEO of the National Hockey League with the Arizona Coyotes. I mean, who would have thought that was possible? You know, you, you, you go back as far as having Scott Carlos Gomez. Gomer was the Calder Trophy winner as Rookie of the Year, Stanley Cup winner, New Jersey Devils. And that huge Latino community in New Jersey probably had no idea who, who Gomer was. So you have Javier, who's Harvard-educated, uh, great hockey person that loves the game, coming to that market in the Valley was a tremendous Latino community. Like, talking about what impact he could have in the game of hockey there out in the desert. I mean, that never happened before. Uh, keep up this important work, Anson. Um, these stories, um, they have to get out. And, uh, you know, it's diversity in hockey is just, it's incredibly important. And I may be a little more cynical on this than you, but I, I am optimistic. I'm not a thousand percent optimistic, but I, I, I think things are heading in the right direction. And, um, and that's where we want to head. Let me sort of give what, uh, when Anson's doing again, check out uh, Hockey Culture, basically, sort of the name of the, the project to the initiative. It's it's on multiple platforms uh, for NBC Sports, including YouTube, and it's going to focus on um, telling stories of people of color and telling stories of diversity when it comes to hockey. And uh, there's some people in here who just like their stories are amazing and have really not been, generally speaking, profiled by uh, mainstream outlets, so it, well worth checking out. And you could, of course, catch Anson's work on um, uh, on NBC uh, during the uh, postseason. Anson is a Toronto guy. You were supposed to bring uh, the Leafs the number one pick. I'll forgive you for that. Uh, <laughs> they had their they had their swing. They had Austin Matthews. <laughs> I know. I know. 
That's as you can imagine, uh, Anson. It's uh, you know DefCon One here. It's you know least 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 nations. Not a happy group at the moment, but uh, but hopefully better days ahead. Uh, Anson, enjoy the playoffs. If, if, there, if there's a go ahead. As we say, if there's a year that the Edmonton Oilers and the Toronto Maple Leafs wish they played the postseason in the bubble, this would be the year. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Sneak I out know. of town quietly, no media, no fans. Get out of Dodge. I know, I know. I was really looking forward to. I, I like to the. Uh, I thought the like uh, Lightning Leaf series would have been really fascinating this year, given no crowds and given uh, playing at Scotiabank. But uh, but uh, right. it'll be the Jackets. Seth Jones, that guy's crazy good. And uh, it'd be, you know, oh, he's the best defense in the league right now. He is. He's, the best. He's and so people awesome. People talk about Shea Weber, but I think Seth Jones is the best defense right now in the league. Yeah, I know. Looking forward. If the Olympics ever happen again, it's going to be awesome to see that guy on the ice. Uh, Anson, uh, thanks so much, man. Continued success in NBC, and, uh, and, uh, and best of luck with really this important project. Thanks for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks, Richard. Anytime. And I want to give a shout-out to my crew, too, just quickly. My crew at NBC Sports, uh, Jake. Has been awesome. Brownie's been awesome. Keisha, Marvin, uh, Evan with research. Like I, I have a really solid team. So everyone that's gonna listen and watch what we're doing, it's not just me. Uh, there's a lot of tremendous individuals behind the scenes that are responsible for making that happen. So I, I couldn't sign off without giving them a shout out. It's good on you, Anson. As having covered media for a long time, usually speaking, the way you can tell someone's not an asshole is if they mention their producer or behind the scenes people. So you've passed my you've passed my test, Anson. Congratulations. And good on you for uh, good on you for doing that. Thanks so much today for for, uh, for joining me, Matt. Best of luck. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to uh, Jim Miller and Anson Carter for their time and insight if you like these conversations um head to the archives and check out some of the latest podcasts that we've done the podcast prior to this uh, had a week and a half off was uh, covering sports inside the sports bubbles with um holly roll of espn tanya ganguly of the la times and stefano fusara fusaro i should say of espn so those guys were covering the WNBA, MLS, and NBA and gave uh, some really interesting insight on just what their experiences are like. Prior to that, we had uh, ESPN National MLB reporter Marley Rivera. Um, Jim Miller was on as well to talk about Adrian Wojnarowski uh, a couple weeks before that. The Athletics' Rhiannon Walker, ESPN's Mike Reese and Josh Tolentino on a number of different topics, Michael Lee. Of the athletic before that, Jay Adande, Lee, and uh, just head down the list of the archives, and uh, hopefully there'll be something there that you like. Uh, as always, this podcast benefits significantly from uh, five star reviews as well as uh, positive reviews. That is pretty much how we stick around, uh, a big indicator for management as well as downloads. So, for those of you who have uh, said some nice things over the years, and many of you have, I really appreciate it. Um, it is pretty much uh, the reason that uh, you know a podcast company will continue with you, uh, as uh, Canis 13 has done with me now for a number of years. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti and Sean Cherry again for their work as producers. Thanks to Chris Corcoran, Spencer Brown, John McDermott at Cadence 13. This is Richard Deitch. We'll see you again soon on the Sports Media Podcast.